when the markets are mature enough, um, we invest in the consumer level. So if Roblox to today touches almost nearly every US household, we believe that there are large companies that are going to get built on the back of this Roblox platform. And we want, we go and invest in the consumer, in, like in the case of Toya. But in AR, VR, for example, um, I think it's still too early to bet on a specific application that will be a winner. Welcome to Future View. Just a quick request. If you like the podcast and want to support more, please hit follow and rate on the platform you're listening on. It helps keep the whole thing going and bring on more guests. Now, onto the show. I open with a short clip from the brilliant Easy Vidra. Easy's done so many amazing things. To list just a few, he's former general partner at Google Ventures Europe, founder of Reimagine Ventures and Tech Bikers, an amazing charity we'll hear more about. This is a special episode diving deep into the world of video games, the metaverse, the consumer experience companies are trying to achieve, and the funding behind these initiatives. I learned a ton, and I genuinely think it's one of the most interesting conversations I've had so far. I also want to take just a moment to tell you about Vault AI at info.vault-ai.com. Now, Vault are a really innovative company, delivering AI-powered consumer insights for leading streamers, TV networks, and film studios. Their analysis is driven by a powerful machine learning engine. So they use consumption data sets and content DNA from over 60,000 titles globally. That, in turn, drives sophisticated predictions of how a title will perform, whether in the US or internationally, who the audience will be, and what marketing will drive them to tune in. It's all based on actual behavioral data, rather than surveys of focus groups, enabling entertainment clients to make better content decisions across key junctures, such as production, development, and marketing. To find out how you can use AI-powered consumer insights, go to info.vault-ai.com. And now, onto the interview. Uh, so easy. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, I'm excited about the interview too. Um, I know I'm going to learn a lot about the worlds of venture capital and Web three in particular that we're going to dive into. But first up, just a little bit of an icebreaker. What's one thing most people wouldn't know about you or might find surprising? So something oh, they couldn't just find on on the internet. That's a good question. So um, you know, I. Um, I created 10 years ago a nonprofit called Tech Bikers that brings together the startup ecosystem around long distance cycling challenges to uh, to build schools and libraries in the developing world. And maybe you know if you Google me, you would find that. Uh, but what, what most people don't know is that I actually don't own a bike. <laughs> I've cycled from Paris to London, Vienna to Budapest, Copenhagen to Berlin, you know, to name a few. Um, but uh, until, you know, over a year ago, um, I was living in a flat and I didn't have a place to to park a bike. So every time I would just rent a bicycle, like the best one I could for the actual rides. Um, so here you go, like a founder of a nonprofit uh, cycling charity that doesn't own a bike. <laughs> well, there we go. that is surprising. And so a couple of things on that. So the charity is called It's Tech Bikers, is it? How, how do people support yeah, that? So- to be honest, I, I didn't um, register as a charity. I registered as a non-for-profit because we support a charity that's called Room to Read, um, um, roomtoread.org. It's an incredible organization that uh, is focused on children literacy in the developing world, uh, especially girls, because uh, as you know, like all opportunities in life start from education. And uh, we've been very fortunate that since inception in 2012, um, we had... Uh, I think now over a thousand people participate in in the various rides, and uh, we've built eleven schools and fifty libraries 
uh, that is in amazing. Thank you. Uh, Nepal, India, Cambodia, Bangladesh, Tanzania, South Africa, and Vietnam. And I was very fortunate to um, to go see a couple of the projects, one in Nepal and one in uh, in Vietnam. And it's just incredible, you know, kids that uh, uh, really don't have very much, uh, in some cases, like not even enough money for shoes, and they have to travel very far to get to schools. And there's always the temptation from the parents to take them out of school and, and have them work, you know, with the family in the fields. Um, but um, this charity not only provides the infrastructure, but also the scholarships, especially for girls and books in the local language and training programs for teachers. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about the long term impact of it. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And when when are you doing the next event? Um, so um, because of COVID, we had to take a couple of years uh, break. You can imagine traveling with 70 people across borders from different nationalities and COVID passports, etc. Um, but uh, earlier this month, uh, one of the uh, previous participants in the Paris to London ride uh, picked up the glove and organized a Faro to Lisbon. Uh, so that just took place uh, earlier this month. And um, next year, we're going to resume activities and uh, probably do again Paris to London, which is the flagship ride. But my dream, Henry, is if I can, is do an Israel ride, which would be, I call it Tel Aviv to Petra, but Mm. uh, it's really Ein Gev to Eilat. So the north of Israel, um, all the way down to the south with a stopover at Petra. And um, I'm sort of like in, in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm hoping that it will happen uh, sometime next year, probably September or October next year. That that would be awesome. I have a couple of candidates who might want to do that with you. And Petra is amazing. I've been there a couple of times. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Now, now Izzy, I also have this vision of you, which you now are going to have to correct me on. So when you rent a bike, are you getting like one of those Boris bikes or Santana no, ones no. or whatever wobbling well, along? <laughs> you know, like, um, so no, get the best road bike <laughs> in and I'm happy to pay for it. Um, but uh, Tech Bikers is an amazing eclectic group of people, uh, you know, like they're all founders, VCs or tech executives. And uh, over the years, we've had every type of bike you can think of, like from Bromptons to Boris bikes to tandem bikes bikes with uh, Chris Mayers, who's one a top angel investor and former founder who's um, 70 and something years old and is completely blind. And uh, he, of course, takes the back of the tandem. But, you know, it, even so, like they smoke me up the hill. And um, I have a great uh, story as well of one of the guys that uh, broke his ankle uh, a couple of weeks before the ride. And uh, he used to row from for Cambridge. He's a very fit, uh, fit guy. And uh, I told him like, hey, Sam, I'm so sorry that you won't be able to join us because I saw a picture on Facebook of him with a cast. And he said like, no, no, no. I talked to my doctor and I'm going to do it on a handbike. So he did 320 kilometers like this. No way. Uh, yeah. No way. And so, and so for people who can't see, so uh, so easy is basically mimicking a rowing action on, yeah. a, on a handbike. That's crazy, right? Yeah, that is utterly crazy. But I could ask you questions about this stuff all day. But we should probably move on to your career and some of the areas that we're going to cover in the podcast. That's so good. so going back to the beginning, you were in the Israeli Defense Forces. You went through multiple startups. I did an MBA, moved on to Google. You became general partner at Google Ventures Europe. So it's an amazing career. And Thank you. so many different things I could kind of pick out there, but just a couple of them. In the army, you're a tank platoon commander. So can you tell me about that? I mean, what was that like? And how's it sort of influenced the way you've approached the rest of your career? 
Um, you know, in Israel, it's a, it's a mandatory military service. And when you turn 18, you uh, pretty much uh, everyone joins the army. That's uh, that's what you have to do, uh, boys and girls. Um, but uh, it taught me a lot about leadership and it taught me a lot about perspective. Um, you know, when a traditional 18-year-old should probably be... Uh, you know, traveling, drinking, maybe making a few bucks uh, in the first jobs and getting experience. This was a different type of experience. It's uh, it's not uh, it's not easy physically, but on on the other end, I think you also learn a lot about um, being a team player and uh, also keeping cool under pressure when you have to make decisions. Uh, you know, both as an individual contributor, but definitely as a leader. I can very much see that. And it's maybe quite a good segue into what you went on to do at Google in terms of um, heading up in Europe, the, the the venture capital kind of arm. So how how did that happen? And why did you progress in that direction? Um, you know, Google was uh, something that I always wanted to do. Uh, when I was uh, in college, my nickname was Hazugal. Uh, like, I used to be very good at using Google and uh, um, was very passionate about the company. So when when I started my career, I started started actually um, initially in Shopping.com, and then from Shopping.com, I was very fortunate that I co-founded a startup. Uh, the startup eventually didn't succeed, but I learned a lot. And from there, I moved to New York. And yada yada. I spent years um, as a product manager and later on managing product teams. But when I finished my MBA at London Business School. Um, I was very fortunate that I had a few options and and one of them was Google. And I felt like, you know what, I've done enough product. Um, I want to do business. Um, so initially I moved to Google to do strategic partnerships um, and uh, help launch a number of products for Google in, in Europe, uh, Google Shopping, Google Wallet, same day delivery, like all the reviews, partnerships. Um, but my passion was startups and venture capital. So I kept searching is there anything i can do with startups or venture capital in europe and one day eric schmidt gave a speech and said that google is going to build an innovation center in london this was around 2011 and uh, at the time um london you know had come out of the financial crisis uh, well now we have a new financial crisis but exactly, uh, yeah. the previous one in, in 2008 where a lot of the people in finance and had lost their jobs and there was a, a need to create, uh, you know, if you will, a, another leg for the British economy to stand on that is not financial services and tech was it. And uh, I was very fortunate to be chosen to, to lead Google Campus, which was Google's first physical hub for startups. And to give you an idea of scale, we did a thousand events in the first year alone. Wow. Um, and then Campus had become very successful. And um, it was the first time Google has done anything like this globally. So um, I was asked to join a newly created team called Google for Entrepreneurs um, and, and write the blueprint for expansion uh, for campus and then um, received permission or, or the blessing from the CFO at Google to launch six new campuses and 30 partner hubs. Um, and I became the head of Google for Entrepreneurs for Europe. Um, that team sat under Google Ventures, what was the non-investing arm of Google Ventures. It was more sort of like ecosystem development. So uh, after a couple of years um, in the role at Google for Entrepreneurs, um, the head of Google Ventures, uh, founder of Google Ventures at the time, 
Um, Bill Maris came to visit in London and uh, he had a great time. I, I organized a, a schedule for him. And uh, at the end of the visit, he just said, like, how would you like to work for Google Ventures? Um, and I said, that would be great. And, uh, Fantastic. That's Fantastic. how I got there. Fantastic. And just so digging into that a little bit, was the idea, and actually it is the idea um, around Google, mainly to invest in companies that can then operate as part of the Google ecosystem? Or is it broader than that? Is it, this is just a good idea, maybe it's got potential for Google further down the line or Alphabet further down the line, um, but it, it's not a sort of criteria necessarily of, of investment. The latter. So you're right, Henry, that uh, most corporate venture capital uh, funds invest for what they call strategic um, value. And um, I think it can create a lot of misalignment uh, down the road. You know, like, first of all, how do you measure strategic value? And then are strategic value investments, good investments financially? And Google Ventures, um, which uh, I think today it's more common, but at the time it wasn't, actually stood out in the sense that uh, Google Ventures invests independently for financial returns, um, but they have a single limited partner, which is Google. Um, and the investments, they don't necessarily have to do with Google. If if they can benefit from the relationship with Google, then uh, Google Ventures knows how to make that happen. Of course, they cannot guarantee it because it was literally an independent entity. So to some extent, it was you know, around supporting entrepreneurs, helping the British economy to some extent, like within London, diversifying for Google. It makes a lot of sense because um, I imagine that if you look at strategic venture, it must be tricky if the business needs to go in a different direction away from the sort of the imperatives of the strategic owner. It's like, guys, like we need to pivot in this direction. And then your strategic venture backer is like, that's of no interest to us. I'd, I'd imagine right. that must be. I mean, that, that, that can happen. There's also a, a bunch of other uh, limitations of strategic investments. Um, you know, like it can be limiting in terms of uh, exit scenarios. So if you have a, a strategic investor that's not purely financial, you know, they might not want your company to be sold to the competitor, even though it's the best thing for the company, um, right? So there's there's many different uh, pros and cons um, in taking strategic money. Uh, but I would say that Google Ventures understood quickly that actually, um, this is, you know, the, the decision making should be financial returns. And then the strategic value is actually how do we maximize financial returns by providing strategic value to the portfolio, which in many ways, it's what inspired me to start Remagine Ventures. I think it'd be um, great to go on to that in just a in just a moment or two. Easy, could um, you maybe just give a quick primer on venture capital as a whole before we get on to re um, Remagine? What's venture capital looking for in terms of just a sort of maybe a quick kind of two minutes overview? And then we could move on to what you specifically would be looking for. Yeah, sure. So first of all, venture capital um, is basically money that's invested or available for investment, typically in a, in a startup, ideally technology startups that involves risk, um, right? So meaning it's a fledgling new company. Um, typically in the software space, but not exclusively, um, that involves some risks. And this type of company can't just go to the bank and say, can I please have a loan? Because the bank wouldn't do it. Not every business is right for venture capital, but uh, the businesses that are, 
um, basically see venture capital as an ideal type of funding because it's the opposite of, of a passive investment, right? So you receive capital plus the expertise and, and knowledge on how to build a company um, and in order to get to the next milestones that you will enable you to sort of like continue scaling up the company and later on um, ideally exit um, typically it can be an IPO an initial public offering in the stock market or a trade sale acquisition by by another larger company. Um, so venture capital is is a type of investment, type of money that uh, I joke that uh, is basically rocket fuel. So if you're trying to get to the moon, you're going to need rocket fuel. So um, so the way that the venture capital works, just very briefly, is um, you have um, limited partners. They invest in funds. Um, and then that they're called LPs. And then those funds are run by general partners or GPs, uh, typically with a specific strategy. It can be uh, focused on a certain geo sector, stage, um, or even type of technology. Um, you know, it can be a thematic fund. And then they, in turn, invest in startups. Uh, when they invest, they are buying equity or a piece of the company that they're investing in and and. Typically, as I mentioned, it's uh, money plus uh, benefits. So um, it just the idea is to at least tri triple or quadruple the money. So basically, limited partners can be individuals, high, ne high net worth individuals. They could be institutions who are interested. And then they're giving the money to a general partner who's basically going, I've got this thesis, I've got this idea, I'm going to invest in this certain sector. It might be the UK or Israel or India or whatever it happens to be in certain sectors. Uh, and then you're accepting this relatively high risk, but looking for a few kind of a, a few big hits. And we'll get onto that in a moment. But what? Why do you invest or not invest? Does it sort of boil down to three or four things? I'd imagine you look in detail at a business plan. But what are the kind of key characteristics that influence your decision making? Sure. So I think typically there's um, things that have to do with the strategy of the fund. And then there's things that have to do with it, with the specific company. Um, so, give or take, uh, you know, traditionally venture capital funds invests in about one percent of the companies they review in a given year. Now, some of the reason for um, for filtering might do with the fund's strategy. So it can be, you know. The company is is not in the right geography that the fund focuses on, not in the right sector, um, not in the right uh, stage. You know, it might be too early, too late, etc. Um, but then there's elements that have to do with the company itself um, and with the company's strategy, and that at the early stage, you know, the, the the different factors vary according to the stage of the company. But at the earliest stage, you're typically looking at uh, team and product slash technology and the market. Um, so, you know, some reasons for not investing can be that the market is not big enough to sustain the venture returns. If you assume that most companies, 90% of companies fail within the first three years of their existence, then you're looking for companies that can potentially drive huge outcomes, uh, not just like nice and modest gains, but uh, actually huge outcomes. So the market is very important, but in order to to succeed in a very competitive, huge market, the team needs to be exceptional, right? So everything at the end of the day connects together. Uh, thank you. It's a great, great summary. And in terms of those three key factors um, in founding kind of team or kind of management team, market and product, 
one of the ways in which I've been thinking about it, and I'm trying to see if I'm thinking about it the right way or if you'd agree, is that the earlier the stage of the company, it's almost like the order goes founding team, market, and then product. And then as the company develops, then I'm not sure if it reverses necessarily, but maybe it's like the product becomes more important. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think um, at the earliest stage, team is everything. Um, and in reality, the idea and the market might change. Um, but you know, the 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 it's it's very important to get the team right. And I think it's very important for the team to have ambitions or to to target a market that is already large and ideally growing. Um, and then you're right at the product. Sometimes in the earliest stage, you don't have the the privilege of even looking at a product, uh, but even though venture capital um, is risk capital, what we try to do as VCs is actually eliminate as much risk as possible from the equation, right? So like if the team is very experienced, then it basically helps you reduce the execution risk because you are aware that this team can execute and they can build a product, et cetera. You know, if the, if the market is already large and proven, then it means that you're not creating a new market, you know, you're not taking the timing risk of, uh, is this going to work? Um, because it's already working and there's proof of that, et cetera, et cetera. So we're, we're trying to, to build this uh, proof points that help us create sort of like a thesis of why this is going to be a huge company. Yeah. So Izzy, I, I promise I will move on to reimagine in a moment, but I'll let uh, you, no I, might, I, might, I, I might digress as I want you, I might digress like a little bit. So not picking on you or reimagine or anything you've done in the past, but in some areas, venture capital has quite a bad name. And I think it gets down to this idea of, well, they're investing in 10, 20 companies. They only really want the big hits. All the money's made out of two of them. And you'll, you can be doing okay as a company, but then they don't support you anymore because they just want to double down on, on their big hits. Is, is that a fair criticism? I think investors vary like um, like anything out there. You know, there's a curve of uh, how helpful um, your investors are. And that's why I always um, recommend uh, not just to think about the firm or who you want to work with, but actually about the individual partner. And as the same way that uh, VCs do references on founders before investing, founders should do references on VCs before taking their money, right? So if someone has been in the business long enough, um, they would have left a trail of either happy customers or very unhappy customers. And uh, yeah, it's, it's. I don't like the terminology, but some some call sort of like taking money from a venture capital fund. It's, it's like a marriage, right? Uh, or they call it a Catholic marriage because there's no possibility for divorce. And uh, if you treat it that way, then, you know, really choose your investors carefully and, uh, align on what is success. I think that setting up early expectations is very important. So, you know, typically when everything goes well, there are, there are no problems, but uh, you measure the the strength or, you know, the help or, or the investor when things don't go well. And uh, for us, we understand that building companies is hard. It's a roller coaster. You know, it takes time to get to results and there's going to be a lot of trials and tribulations along the way. And this is what we're in for. And, uh, we also position ourselves in that way that, uh, you know, we're going to be with the founders in the good days and also the bad days. So moving on to Remagine, what's your sector focus and what's your approach um, around this sector? Yeah. So, um, you know, I spent 
five years in the States, uh, three in New York and two in San Francisco. And then I moved to London 14 years ago. But my passion was always sort of like Israeli startups. And uh, when Kevin and I teamed up to, to start Reimagine Ventures, um, we wanted to have a, a very good answer to the question of how you're different. Because if you agree that the best companies are going to receive multiple offers, the question is, why should they take your money, right? And we created Remagine Ventures in a way as a multi-corporate Google Ventures, where we invest independently for financial returns, but we managed to line up a number of strategics all across the value chain of media and entertainment, um, you know, broadcasters, publishers, telcos, agencies, uh, investment banks that are focused on the sector, in addition to family offices, high net worth individuals, et cetera. And then we started with this focus on media and entertainment. And we said, like, when the markets are mature enough, we're going to invest in the consumer. Um, and uh, I'll get in a minute what it means. And when the markets are not mature enough, but we believe that they will grow, we'll invest in infrastructure or the tech enablers. Hmm. And we've been pretty much executing on that uh, strategy from inception um, in 2018. And um, we've essentially... Um, focused on gaming, metaverse, and consumer tech, both content and infrastructure. Um, and when I say, you know, markets are mature enough, I mainly mean gaming, which is the most popular form of entertainment for anyone under 50. Um, and metaverse, etc., cetera, is, is still in its infancy, but it has huge potential. And there it's more infrastructure um, investments and understanding what are the pillars of this metaverse, what technologies are going to be necessary in order for these to succeed? Um, but uh, I'm happy to talk about sort of like what we've invested in and, and uh, how we're different. I'll just say like the parameters. We're currently investing out of Fund One, which is a 35 million fund, um, and focus only on Israel or Israel-related companies. Um, and we're in the process of launching Fund Two, targeting 70 million, uh, where we'll invest uh, in Israel and Europe um, at the earliest stage, seed and pre-seed. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, I, if I can divide up those categories into two, and maybe just a, a couple of examples to give listeners a little bit of a flavor. So when you say you're focusing on the consumer proposition, as opposed to the tech enabled side of things, what are some examples of then consumer facing propositions, if that's the right terminology that you've invested in, in the video game sector? Yeah, so we've, we've done a number of uh, gaming investments, uh, we tend to look for teams and uh, and products that have something different uh, or unique about them versus yet another you know one in the genre um so one example is we invested in a company um, called rebel bots which is the first uh, crypto gaming studio coming out of israel it's a very experienced team um, in terms of their ability to build games and they've been extremely successful in in creating a very strong community even before launching the game um so that's you know an example where we co-invested with makers fund which is a, a great uh, gaming fund from asia and then we brought ubisoft um and overwolf to invest and uh, later when the startup no longer needed uh, to sell equity um and they were selling tokens and and virtual land etc any mocha brands also joined so that's an example you know the first one in, in its genre coming out of israel and, uh, has been very successful we invested in toya which is a uh, studio for uh, creating experiences for girls on roblox 
partnering with IP owners uh, to create virtual worlds and role play models um, for girls on Roblox. And, you know, they've been their first game, Miraculous Ladybug, attracted over 350 million plays with zero spent on marketing. So we were very intrigued by these different mm -hmm. models of gaming uh, and happy to talk about some others. But those are two examples. Yeah, those are really good examples and actually pulling it towards the, the data insights and sort of consumer insights sort of type of direction. So the second example that you described where you're creating experiences for um, yeah, for girls on, on Roblox, how does the development process and the sort of consumer feedback process work within that type of sector or that type of proposition? It's a, it's a great question. I have to say the team is completely customer obsessed. So they practically co-develop the products with their community. They have, uh, um, I think, daily or weekly play sessions where the team plays together and they also um, solicit feedback from their community on Discord um, and offers different perks for players to, to give them feedback. These players are typically teenage girls, right? Or um, So it's it's creating that trust that... Essentially, uh, they are there to serve the user and to give them a great play experience that's entertaining and fun, but you know, also educational. So they they really feed from the community. And the way that it works on Roblox is traditional gaming. Um, typically, in a traditional gaming investment, you have to um, spend a lot on marketing. And uh, in Roblox, it's different because if the game is engaging then the recommendation algorithms of Roblox will drive a lot of traffic to you. So everything lies on actually creating that engaging um, gaming session. And that's where what Toya focuses on. And it's a lot of back and forth, you know, sort of like sharing what they're going to do, getting the feedback from the community, and then feeding back the feedback into the product development. That's so interesting because, as you say, they're, part of the reason for their success is they've been obsessed with consumer um, feedback. And then they're getting it in novel ways. But what I really like is that they're also combining the actual, um, like almost like telemetric data, if that's the right sort of phrase around it. They can see what's happening, but then you're using social media and you're building out communities to sort of co-develop. In, in terms of the crypto bit of it, we'll move on to that in, in a second, because mm -hmm. then you can explain to me what on earth is going on yeah, sure. <laughs> within, within that sort of world. So sure. I'd imagine the gaming has been very, very much at the leading edge of that world, and particularly around ideas of it's almost the opposite of pay to play, isn't it? It's the it's the it's it's uh, if you play yeah. and you earn at yeah. the same time, kind of through um, through crypto. How is that working? Are you seeing that as a kind of a, a big developing trend? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, in the past couple of years, um, you know, like just in in Q two alone of twenty twenty two. There's uh, over two and a half billion invested into this category of crypto gaming, um, and that's you know compared to like four billion invested in 2021. And the reason it's such a growing trend, even though we're at the infancy of it, and, and I'll explain in a minute why, um, it's because I think it has the potential to solve a lot of the inherent challenges in gaming investments as a category. So as I started saying, when you invest in gaming, typically a third of the budget goes for product development. And another third, you know, goes for um, sort of like advertising and marketing, sometimes mm -hmm. uh, more. And it has become, especially in free-to-play mobile gaming, it has become 
almost almost like a science like you're going to put this amount into marketing and you're going to get this amount ad out um, in revenue typically with aggressive ad monetization and that aggressive ad monetization really hurts the the user experience right because you play a little bit and then you get shoved some ads and you know the whole sole purpose of the game um once they've you know sort of like put the money out to develop the product is to recuperate that cost of acquiring the user. And the only way that they have to do it is to, to push in-app purchases or advertising to you. Crypto gaming actually has the potential to change some of those paradigms on their head, right? Because with crypto gaming, in many cases, they build a community before even launching the game. And that community buys into the project by uh, purchasing nfts so it's a uh, you can think about it as i'm purchasing my future character in the game that i will play and then those future characters or nfts have the potential to go up or down in value um, and then once you own um, an nft in a game it typically comes with additional perks so you're eligible for additional drops you know you can get accessories for that character you can be eligible to participate in other types of um, you know investments in virtual goods before even the game launch like virtual land etc that enables you to multiply the characters and if you compare it to let's say a closed um, game like fortnite which is owned by epic games players spent four to five billion dollars on virtual clothing on Fortnite in 2021. Um, you wow. know, they, they spent four to five billion dollars on a single game in buying virtual clothing for their character on the game. Why? Because we spend more time online and money follows attention. And when you spend your social time online, you want to look good in front of your friends. You don't want to look like a noob and uh, and wear, you know, I think on Fort PUBG, at least you start semi-naked or, you know, wearing underwear. You don't want to mm. be the, the, the person that wears the default clothing. Um, in, in Web3 or in crypto gaming, um, you know, you also are purchasing stuff for your character. You also are improving your character. But in Fortnite, when you stop playing, that character belongs to Epic Games. That's it. It goes mm -hmm. to the, you stop playing, that character disappears. In crypto gaming, that character and those virtual goods belong to you. And they might increase in value. So when you stop playing, you can actually decide, I'm going to sell my character and make money. Or when you play the game, in some cases, like you have a play to earn mechanisms that like you suggested, you can earn money by playing or earn crypto or earn tokens mm. that can then be redeemed and whatnot. So people, uh, you know, the most challenging thing in, in gaming is retention and keeping people engaged. And crypto gaming not only has the potential to sort of like reduce the, the reliance on marketing, but also to increase retention because people stay and continue to play because they can earn money, because their assets appreciate in value. So that's those, that's the hypothesis, at least. The biggest problem or the biggest challenge in this space is, is what they call onboarding, which is which means sort of like getting more players to, to play Web3 games by having the infrastructure like a crypto wallet, et cetera. And there's several initiatives underway to simplify that process and have people just do it simply with a credit card um, and whatnot. Uh, so there's already a few success um, cases that uh, that have emerged and uh, I think there's a lot of promise of what's coming next and a lot of smart money flowing into that sector. In terms of this idea of the metaverse, however one wants to define it, and I know that's controversial, but let's call it some form of, you know, persistent kind of virtual world and I know there are other characteristics around it. This 
other side of the fund is, as I understand it, investing more in enablement kind of technology. How far away do you think we are in terms of a really sort of persistent world that can mimic what we're doing in the real world or sit alongside it? It starts with sort of like defining um, what is the, you know, the what is the metaverse and, and uh, what's the vision for the metaverse. And I think there, you know, we're talking about social immersive experiences um, where we interact together in sort of like a virtual way and we can converse, we can transact, we can play together, we can learn. So really the potential of the metaverse um, as this like 3D social medium uh, that we can create and engage in shared experiences is huge. And it has the potential to disrupt actually or, or touch many industries, not just gaming. Gaming is just a fantastic entry point because it's a it's a place where this behavior, this 3D, um, you know, personalization of avatars, etc., is already happening. Today, we are defining sort of like uh, or separating two main uh, segments, like the closed metaverses, which are tend to be like games um, that are virtual worlds that are closed. It can be like Roblox or Fortnite and open metaverse, which is more decentralized, uh, which is sort of like where you have the overlap with the Web3, blockchain, ownership, economy, etc. So I define metaverse somewhere between gaming, AR, VR, blockchain, and the creator economy, which is like a layer to empower people to build content into these virtual worlds. Um, how far are we from making it ubiquitous? You know, I think it could be even a decade away, but in some cases, a lot of it is already here. And a lot of those behaviors we see already today in, in this closed metaverses that we see, and also in new um, plays to empower people to own part of the internet, like Web3, like NFTs, uh, and the smart contracts that come with it, yada, yada. Now, um, what, what I think needs to happen is there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be to get built in order to enable those experiences. And this is where we spend a lot of our effort at Remagine Ventures. And that infrastructure ranges from sort of like devices, you know, operating systems, accessories, um, to enablers like, you know, security, privacy, identity, payments and monetization. Then all the way you sort of like from, from outside the sort of like ground floor infrastructure to content applications and and then virtual worlds uh, themselves. So we put the consumer in the middle. We actually developed a bit of a framework of how we invest in the space. And as I mentioned in the beginning, when the markets are mature enough, um, we invest in the consumer level. So if Roblox today touches almost nearly every US household, we believe that there are large companies that are going to get built on the back of this Roblox platform, and we want, we go and invest in the consumer, in, like in the case of Toya. But in AR, VR, for example, um, I think it's still too early to bet on a specific application that will be a winner. You know, there, there are some examples of huge uh, success stories like Beat Saber, which is a single game that made already over $180 million in sales. Um, but there we prefer to invest in infrastructure and we believe that like a rising tide raises all boats. So we invested, for example, in Echo 3D, which is a company that's, that's doing a CDN content delivery network and CMS content management system for 3D content. So if you're a developer and you want to work with 3D content, the traditional uh, file sharing systems or CDNs don't really work for 3D. 
And Echo 3D provides a seamless experience that enables you to stream these 3D models across platforms, devices, et cetera, and give you model level analytics. It was also the first investment out of Qualcomm's um, 100 million new metaverse fund. Another example is um, Hour One, which uh, is a company that creates synthetic video using human avatars or uh, actually animated characters or metahumans. So you're able to generate video with text without the need of a camera. We all heard about DALI, you know, or uh, yeah. sort of like text to image. This is one level above of, you know, being able to animate characters and have them speak in any language, in any accent, just using text. Um, and today it's already advanced enough that they're able to produce in real time or near real time uh, 3D news studio with a presenter that can speak any language and show a video within a video of the news of the day, you know, the sports results of the day, the personalized or localized uh, um, weather forecast. It's it's incredible. And we're going to need those types of technologies mm -hmm. or pillars of the metaverse in order to be able to populate these virtual worlds. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where we focus a lot of our effort. Yeah, I, I really like it as an investment thesis. And I think it makes a lot of sense around the idea that if the technology is sufficiently developed and that the consumer marketplace is there, then invest in a consumer-facing proposition. If it's not sufficiently developed, then invest in the companies that are moving the technology to the point whereby it can become a mass market proposition. I think it makes an enormous amount of sense. Yeah. Um, so you see, we should probably move on. I'm conscious we're coming up mm. to the coming up to the allotted time. And I want to do a quick fire round, if that's all right with you. Sure, let's do it. So the first question I'm going to start, I know what my answer would be, because it's actually the metaverse from probably about 18 months or so ago. But what mm. have you changed your mind about recently? Good question. I think the importance of um, nutrition and personal health, I thought that... Uh, you know, I could do whatever I want, and but age is starting to to, to give his uh, signals, and I'm basically completely changed my diet, uh, moved to you know exercising every day. Um, so something I had to change very drastically, very quickly recently. Well, you're you're looking very well on it, I have to say. Thank you so much. <laughs> Work in progress. Uh, who have your mentors been, and um, what did you learn from them? Oh, good question. Um, you know, mentorship is something I crave, but I never actually had an official mentor that I could say, like, you know, this person is my mentor. But I was very fortunate to learn from different people along um, in my career. And I want to give a lot of credit to Willard Adritz, um, the founder of Cobalt Music Group that uh, recently sold to Francisco Partners. Uh, I was very fortunate to be able to invest in Cobalt Music Group when I was at Google Ventures and sit on the board and Willard is just an example of the tenacity, grit, and you know uh, longevity that you need in order to be successful with a startup when you're disrupting a whole industry. Um, so someone I learned a lot from, whether it's from our conversations or from just watching him operate. Uh, fantastic. Yes. And, and those three characteristics, I, I guess, are incredibly good advice for entrepreneurs of tenacity, grit, perseverance. It, it doesn't happen quickly, whatever people think. It comes with the job description. Absolutely. So if you could be the CEO of any company in the world, what company would that be and why? Uh, you know, it's a hard question, but I would have to say Nintendo. Okay. Because it's small enough, you know, that you can still grow it and, and make an impact. I think it has incredible assets. 
um, and and consumers love the brand. I mean, they there's so few companies that were able to transcend, you know, generations. I, I played Nintendo when I was a kid, and I think my kids really enjoyed playing Nintendo today. And the characters that they created, you know, 30 years ago are still relevant. So I, I could see myself having a lot of fun with something that touches media, gaming, consumer, uh, but also tech and innovation. Yeah, as, as you said, it's a great answer that they have an amazing corporate brand with incredible longevity, but also supported by incredible IP as well. They do. And you never hear controversial stuff about them. They're just very solid, you know, like, and they, they always want to do right by the consumer, which I admire. Final question. What's your favorite book or uh, recent books that um, you, you've absorbed or listened to? They don't have to be business books, by the way, it could be novels or whatever, whatever. You know, it's funny. So in a very timely uh, way, I would say I just restarted reading The Old Man and the Sea. Uh, I typically don't read uh, novels or fiction. I only read them very boring, either startup books or, or um, you know, startup slash venture capital or happiness books. But The Old Man and the Sea is this tiny book by Hemingway. And it just, uh, you know, takes you back to, to sort of like simpler times and uh, human interaction. And I really appreciate sort of like the non-pretentiousness of it. It's like, it's very deep in its message, but it's told as a story. And, uh, you know, on the same note, I would say a book that I recommend to a lot of CEOs um, is it's called The Five Temptations of a CEO. Um, and uh, the book is basically told as a fable. It's told as a story and uh, it's very easy to digest the lessons uh, from it. So if you pick it up, uh, it's by Patrick Lencioni. You will finish it in 24 hours, especially if you're a CEO. Trust me on this one. That sounds like an amazing recommendation, actually. And you see, there's another one. I can't remember the name now, but I picked it up from you in the past. The guy who is the Israeli squash champion, who is now a professor. Oh, yeah. Harvard. Yeah, that's awesome. It's called The Pursuit of Perfect. Um, yeah, it's brilliant. It's yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Tal Ben Shachar is yeah, it's fantastic. Especially if you suffer from uh from this flaw that's called perfectionism that I think too many of us uh, suffer from. It's it's almost like therapy this book. Uh, I recommend it. Yeah, it's very very good. You see, thank you so much. It's been fascinating and really really appreciate the time and hopefully we can do it again some other time soon. Thank you, Henry. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty much in awe of Easy. Not only does he have a cool name, he's done so much, he's accomplished, he's thoughtful, and he's such a lovely guy to boot. I'll get the transcript up as soon as possible so you can dig in further. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, if you want to support, please follow and rate on the platform you're listening to. Thanks so much. And thanks again to Vault AI for sponsoring. Check them out at info.vault-ai.com. It's also on the website. See you next week. Thank <music> you.